This is not the story simply of victims who withered in the face of oppression. From Florida teachers, but rather the story of a resilient people to a national debate. We need to tell people's stories the way they told their stories, not to fit our expectations. New African-American history standards, the perceptions, the politics. You can develop resiliency in a million ways. It doesn't have to involve the enslavement of black bodies. These are things that are obviously phony narratives, um, and you know we're gonna fight back against that uh, every chance we get. From the group that wrote the lessons, a first-hand account right here live. I say leave nothing out within the realm of human capacity. I am ready to send Joe Biden back to his basement in Delaware where he belongs. A month to the debates, who's in? If I weren't running, I would have nobody coming after me. Or if I was losing by a lot, I would have nobody coming after me. Who's up? And who has the attention of South Florida voters? The big news of the week, and we take it to the roundtable, live this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning, I'm Glenna Milberg. The backlash became a demand this week for the Florida Department of Education to rethink and redo parts of the new African-American history standards that led to national debate, with much of the focus on just one line in the 40 pages of curriculum that benchmarks how slaves developed skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Those are the verbatim words. Critics erupted at the possibility students would be taught there was an upside to the American atrocity of slavery. The Department of Education doubled down this week, insisting that is not what the curriculum says and not what it does. This has been interpreted to mean slaves benefited from slavery, and that is not the standard at all. What this is saying, what this is saying is, this is not the story simply of victims who withered in the face of oppression, but rather the story of a resilient people who responded to their oppressors in an adaptive manner, utilizing every resource at their disposal to resist the inhumane nature of the bondage they were in. That was the department's social studies director explaining or clarifying the intent of that at the summer seminar on all the new standards held in Miami Dade this week. We talked to a number of teachers there who weighed in with varying perspectives, as you might expect in this state at this moment. Today, we get a firsthand perspective from one of the 13 people in the work group who wrote the standards. Dr. William Allen is Emeritus Dean and Professor of Political Science at Michigan State, former chair of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, appointed by former President Reagan, and volunteered on that work group. Dr. Allen, we are grateful for your time today and hopefully your candor. It's a pleasure to be with you. 
So we spoke earlier in the week. Um, there have been developments daily on this. And as an African-American man and as someone so involved in the civil rights arena, how do you hear this backlash from people who are genuinely perceiving this to be an, an affront and are galled by the fact that students might be learning this? That, that is an honest perception. Well, there's an easy example by which I can show you how I hear it and perceive it and the fundamental error that's involved in people's discussion of it. I'm a Floridian. I was raised in Fernandina Beach, which of course was segregated and I was educated in segregated schools. If I said to you I had an excellent education, you would be mistaken to think that segregation was responsible for my excellent education. When I speak of my excellent education, I'm crediting my teachers and my classmates, my colleagues, not segregation. But under segregation, I had an excellent education from which I benefited. That contemporary, modern-day example is no different than what the curriculum is saying about 150, 170 years ago and more, that coping mechanisms are part of every biological organism's uh, portfolio. And in human beings, those coping mechanisms have to do with resilience, intelligence, industry, fortitude, determination. To say, therefore, that people who were held in slavery were not deprived of their humanity, it ought to be intuitive to every intelligent being. And that is, of course, what the new standards in Florida have said. So the, the new standards um, are probably 40, more than 40 pages long. And if they're on our website, for anyone to go in there, it's a public record, you can read them. And, and it does really go through a very comprehensive look at uh, pre-slavery, slavery, post-slavery, post -slavery, and, and to suggest that it, it is not comprehensive just is not factual. However, this one line, the, the words personal benefit, to me seem to be what's perceived as, a, as an affront, as an attempt of turning something positive uh, about an American atrocity. So instead of fighting about it and, and digging heels, which seems to be happening, why not revisit the language and not change the lesson you're trying to impart, but change the wording of it um, in, a, in a more collaborative way? Why not? Well, well you know, Ms. Milberg, I could accept one modification, and that is a modification that referred to personal and community or social benefits. Because, of course, it wasn't just the individuals who benefited, but this entire nation ultimately benefited from it. And that could have been expanded. But anything that would deny benefit deriving from human exertion, even under the extreme conditions of oppression, would be false and it would be dehumanizing. The idea that you should not speak of people making whatever utilities they could in the circumstances in which they found themselves to their own use and benefit is dehumanizing. You might as well say, they aren't capable of doing anything because that's what you end up saying. You're saying slavery is so complete, so thorough, that no person held in slavery retains his or her humanity. Well, these curriculum standards can't say a thing like that. And I would hope that no one in Florida would want them to say a thing like that. 
So prior to this particular curriculum, which isn't being taught yet, I think it's next, next school year when it finally mm -hmm. bubbles up into the classroom, what's different about that than might be being taught now? Because teaching about enslavement in public schools, it's taught every year, maybe not as yes. formally, but, but there is curriculum in Florida schools. So what, what would be the difference Here's the critical difference, and, and it's, I'm so glad you asked that question because it's critical not only in Florida but in the entire country. This is the first standalone set of curricula standards for teaching African-American history. Florida is a pathbreaker in this regard and is setting a standard that people ought to rise to rather than trying to find some way to evade. We have to confront the reality that understanding our past requires two things fundamentally one is learning from the past in the words of the past the way people experience the past secondly learning from the past in a way that surfaces the fundamental humanity because unless we retain our sense of fundamental humanity whether we're talking about the holocaust or slavery or anything else we lose sight altogether of any worthwhile justice or any worthwhile objectives that might be pursued. I can't imagine anyone would argue with that concept. And, and since you brought up Holocaust education, Florida does have Holocaust education. Yes. Um, there is no benchmark, no curriculum in the Holocaust education that might suggest that people who were in concentration camps learned any skill or benefit benefited from anything that they might have taken, even though there are stories of resilience and um, and cunning from the in camp, uh, the people who were interred. Wouldn't that be apples to apples to put something in that curriculum as well? And I, I can imagine the backlash there as well from especially this community. Well, I, I don't have any problem with saying, yes, those stories are legion and it, and it is there. It may not be in the standards that were crafted for that curriculum in Florida, but it's present throughout discussions of the Holocaust. It's present in the National Holocaust Museum. The point is that people are always burdened to emphasize the extent to which human beings retain their humanity. And to retain their humanity is to insist that they find in whatever the circumstances are, any opportunity they can exploit to their advantage. The word advantage, the word benefit, there's no difference between those words. So, so this, this is important. Yeah, 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 I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt. No, you go, please so, go right ahead. So this, um, this is in the political arena and, and isn't everything in our day and time. Yeah. In Florida, especially, we're a very divided state at a very divided time. And, and it seems, just in our reporting this week, that conservative thinkers are very supportive of this curriculum and, and behind it vocally. And more liberal thinkers are behind this backlash, and, t and many take it very personally and individually. Why do you think this is such a political issue now? I, there was a report in Reuters just in the last couple of days, which I would call your attention to, which suggests deliberate exploitation of the issue and deliberate distortion and points to not just Vice President Harris, but an entire operation at the campaign level for the coming election that has fastened upon this as a wedge issue 
that can be used to divide and to stir up the base. Now, I don't know if that's true. I'm citing to you a Reuters report. The politics is of no interest or concern to me, frankly. But I understand, as a political scientist and someone with some experience in these matters, that politicians sometimes do things not on the basis of principle, but on the basis of momentary perceived advantage. And I think you're speaking about something that's happening, we've seen, on both sides of that aisle. Dr. Allen, if you sit with us for a couple of minutes, we have to take a quick break. I'd love some more time with you when we come right back. with Dr. William Allen, who is one of the 13 people on the work group that wrote Florida's new African-American history standards, now so much in the news. Dr. Allen, I know um, that your time on this work group was as a volunteer. I wanted to talk a little bit about the process of the group, and maybe you'll take us a little bit behind the scenes of how that went. And I want to start with this question. This work group, this whole writing of the standards was specifically so that this uh, curriculum could comport with Florida's new laws, framing race education and sex education as well, but for our purposes today, uh, race, race history. And, and in the new law, there are words that describe how no lessons can um, make a student feel guilty or feel shame. Uh, it's, that's not verbatim, but that's the concept in the new law. And I wonder if that was top of mind as you and your group were writing this. Was that line in the new law very important or a priority of sorts for you to fit everything into? Certainly not. We were, of course, referred to the new legislation because our existence was mandated by the new legislation. And therefore, I assume that people in general were familiar with that and other portions of the language in the statute. But there was no point in my recollection, and it's on public record, so I can speak about this. There was no point at which anyone ever made reference to trying to avoid offending someone's feelings. And let me give you one clear explanation of why that might have been, which also applies to the way people are reacting to the published standards. A soundly educated human being knows the difference between inference and implication. And inference is what one imagines a statement to mean. And implication is what the statement intends, conveys. So the difference between inference and implication means precisely that no one can foretell or preclude inferences. Now, with regard to implications, there was no attempt whatever to imply anything that has been attributed to these standards in the current discussion. The work group that did this was arranged, I think you mentioned, was arranged specifically to do this task. Yes. So there, the first thing I did when I started to report on this whole thing, as most of us do, we hit Google. <laughs> see, lay the net and see what we could find. And there is, the state has an African-American history task force made mm -hmm. up, and, and it's a venerable task force, been around for years. And that has been the task force that has, I guess, guided or um, suggested what goes into, until now, Florida's curriculum. What has, and that was appointed by the education commissioner, which has been a, a conservative for the past 
decade, two decades here in Florida. So, so why was a new task force necessary? Well, I can't answer that question. As you know, I responded to a general appeal. Uh, I didn't inquire into the motivations for constructing a separate work group. But we all know from general practice, historically speaking, that sometimes having dedicated task forces proceed far more directly with less bureaucratic inertia to accomplish a purpose. This happens at every level of government throughout the world. And so it's not surprising to me that someone who was determined to act expeditiously and get a job done wanted to get it done with a clear focus, laser-like intensity, rather than getting it lost in a maze of traditional practices. So the 13 people, including yourself, were uh, all volunteers responding like you did to this call. Mm -hmm. um, John Dubell, who is the Department of Education's Social Studies Director, we met with him this week. He, he was at the seminar locally uh, presenting the curriculum to teachers. And he was telling me he was in the room when your task force finished writing this curriculum and was very proud of the accomplishment and actually applauded is what he described. And now in the news, couple of, uh, this week actually, bubbling up in the news are reports that some people on that task force were actually opposed to this, uh, this specific line we're talking about and some other things. Um, no names given, sourced as anonymous. Do, do you know what to make of that? Were, was there opposition in that room with you? I know, yeah, I know precisely what to make of it. As I think I've told you before, the record of the deliberations is completely public. It's recorded, there are transcripts as well as audiovisual. Anyone can research that. No one will find any statement of that kind of opposition, period. So on your task force, this was unanimous? It was consensual. It was consensual. We, were, we deliberated in a collaborative fashion. We reached consensual agreement. We were not following parliamentary procedures. The civil rights organization, the U.S. Uh, civil Rights Commission that you chaired a few decades ago, mm -hmm. is an organization focused on inequality, uh, history of inequality, and inequality in real time. Give us your opinion, your expert analysis. Are, do we have, are we experiencing inequality still in the United States in real time? Well, let me say first, the function of the Civil Rights Commission is to appraise the enforcement of civil rights laws and to make recommendations to strengthen them where needed. So its mandate is not simply to give opinions about inequality or equality. There will always be inequalities among human beings for one obvious reason. Human beings are differently endowed. The endowments are God-given with respect to our fundamental rights, and those are the same for everyone, but with respect to our particular talents or characteristics, they are diverse. And we expect to see that diversity everywhere. So we do not focus at the Civil Rights Commission, at least in my time, and I don't think they're doing it today, on the question of inequality as an abstraction. What we do for care about is the imposition of inequality artificially, that is the unequal enforcement of the laws. And there it is absolutely critical that the commission and all other such agencies work with eagle-eyed intensity 
to root out artificial inequalities. Dr. William Allen, I know you upended your own schedule to be with us today. I am deeply grateful for that and appreciate your time. You are most welcome. I didn't get to finish my worship service this morning, but I was sufficiently inspired. <laughs> I think someone will be looking down on you favorably. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. And up next, we are taking it to the roundtable. Stay tuned. Now, Republican candidates for president will take the debate stage for a first side-by-side -side comparison, but which, who will make the cut, and which of the Florida men will show? We start today's This Week in South Florida roundtable there with a look from all perspectives, or as many as we can fit at this table. With us today, Bernadette Norris-Weeks, who is a partner with the Austin Haney's Norris-Weeks Powell Law Firm. Boy, there was more names since last we spoke. <laughs> uh, also, counsel to South Florida governments and founder of the Women of Color Empowerment Institute. Jaden D'Onofrio, chair of the Florida Democratic Party's Youth Council, which is focused on building engagement among young voters. Armando Ibarra is president of Miami Young Republicans and founder of AI advisory firm. All veterans of the roundtable, really great to have you back. Um, Armando, you are our sole conservative voice today, not because we didn't try, but we had some people back out at the last minute, but I know you're up to the task. So let me, let me uh, start with you. How important are those debates for the Florida candidates, especially next month? Well, they're incredibly important. I think first, uh, you know, the amount of time until the primaries is in politics is an eternity. A lot is going to happen. But also, very importantly, Republican voters, they want to go through this process, right? When the last time we had a presidential primary was almost eight years ago. I think this process is important so that voters can see what the, are the issues that the candidates are running on, you know, which candidates have the medal to compete for, for this primary. And so it's very healthy and important that we go through it. And I think they're going to get very, very high ratings because people are ready to see this debate. You know, you, you mentioned eight years ago. Oh, eight years ago. I, I was on that campaign trail. And it was a far different campaign trail with former President Trump then than it is now. Um, Bernadette, the the whole format of a debate, we don't we know who's made it according to Republican Party rules so far, uh, and both two of the three Florida men have. Do you think that it's important for former President Trump to show up because we don't know whether he will? And um, and you know the dynamics we know from television, the dynamics of what the theater of it is is kind of important just as much as the context and the um, and the information dispensed. So what do you think? Sure. I, I don't think that President Trump benefit, former President Trump benefits from showing up. He has such a commanding lead right now in the polls, um, his own polls, other polls that other people are doing. I mean, DeSantis right now is down more than 30 points, percentage points in the polls. I want to talk there's, about that too. Yeah, there's yeah. no real reason for um, the former president to show up. And um, all right, let's switch because you're my my young voice, <laughs> and you are you are you in college yet? I'm I'm just getting ready to go to college now. So you you know permit me to notice that you are in a demographic that is not very engaged collectively, and do you think your 
your demographic will be watching these debates and what are you going to look for? I, I don't believe our demographic will be watching these debates that they much. they watch television um, at all? <laughs> I, we try, we try, we watch, and but you know, especially with the Republican Party, we certainly are not going to watch these debates that much. Why? Why, um, why wouldn't you? As, as a demographic, I think we are very um, organized behind uh, democratic politics um, and our policies have shown time and time again as we have voted in 2018, 2020, and 2022, three major elections in a row, we have backed the Democratic Party time and time again. I think Armando might want to take issue with what's coming up there. Well, you know, I think young people should turn in, uh, tune into the Republican primaries. They should follow the primaries on both sides very closely. Our president is is uh, a very high age. There are a lot of questions about his capacity to fulfill a second term. And I think it's time uh, that, or many people feel that it's time for there to be a, a generational handing of the torch to the next generation so that they can lead um, in our country, in our state, locally, and that's why it's very important for young people to tune in because their future is, is going to be impacted by this process, and if they don't participate, then they're not going to have a place at the table. Well, you know, the, the Republican frontrunner at the moment is about the same age as the President of the United States. There's not very, there's not much daylight between them there. Um, I want to, let me, before we leave this kind of, I want to go into Governor DeSantis is in Iowa right now, very focused on the early primary and caucus states, um, and headed to New Hampshire. Bernadette, the, this governor has had such an amazing run in Florida, and now all of a sudden, his campaign can't move his own numbers. His, uh, he's trying to focus on the early states. He thinks that if momentum there will carry him through, but he's not getting that at the moment. Well, what do you think is happening there? A campaign reset, laid off uh, close to what 40 people, a little fewer than 40 people, pulling back on his fun, on his spending. What is what happened? Well, I think that what happened with um, the governor having uh, such a good run with um, the the governorship in the last election had a lot to do with just very little funding coming into Florida, people writing Florida off completely. I don't think that, uh, now that people really know what um, Governor DeSantis says and what he thinks and, and, um, and uh, you know, the, the Trump has um, an advantage in that he is a personality. In, in, in many ways, but he's, um, a, sh he's a showman. He's a showman. There's, he, there's he, no dispute he, about that, right? He, he is a showman, this? and, yeah. and for everything <laughs> that you can say, you know, horrible about him, and there are a lot of things you can probably say, but you know, it, DeSantis is not. And so now that you have a, 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 an election where people have to put their viewpoints out there, really, um, you know, meet and greet voters, which DeSantis, according to Iowa reports, isn't doing a great job with with that. Um, you he, people will see him and see him for who he is. So he, um, I, I want you all to weigh in on that because retail politics is what they, but the name of what you were just talking about is so important in those states and yet the governor has a record to run on, whether, you, whether or not you agree with the record is, is not, notwithstanding, but he has a record to run on. He's in the middle of you know, what we call the culture wars and is a commanding lead over those. What is, is that important that he is not a, a glad hander or a social butterfly? Well, go ahead. I, I mean, I think it's, it's one of the most critical parts of uh, a campaign. You need to be able to relate to the people that you're trying to gather around you to, to have them support your 
policies, um, and we've seen that fail outright time and time again for uh, Governor DeSantis and his race for, for the presidency. And it's actually so bad that the polls that continue to come out, um, even the most recent one out in Ohio, show him five points behind Vivek Ramaswamy um, for, for, for president. Well, I think running at a national level uh, for any candidate has a, a learning curve. Uh, I think what we, on the plus side, we've seen that his campaign is adapting quickly. They've done a reboot. They are focusing now or, or, or focusing more towards economic issues, kitchen table issues. I think those are the things that are going to move more voters. Do you think that's because the culture war issues are not resonating where he needs them to resonate? I think those issues are important for the base, but I think for any voter, regardless of whether the base, they're independents or Democrats, they want to hear about kitchen, uh, kitchen table issues. They want to hear about inflation. They want to hear about jobs and economic growth. They want to hear about opportunities for their families. And I think he's pivoting towards that. That's very important. He has the best record in the country as a governor on these issues. Florida today is the fastest growing economy. We're creating many jobs. Here in South Florida, we're seeing some of the fastest wage growth and, and job growth in the whole country. So this is a great story for him to tell. And I think as he pivots to that, as I think as we get into the debate and he gets to talk in detail about how he's addressed these issues, uh, there's going to be a, a second look for the governor. Do you yeah. think? Um, I, I was push I, back on that. I was going to say, while all those things are factual on paper, you have Florida families who are just drowning in unaffordable housing and um, a crisis in insurance that I know lawmakers are trying to fix but have not fixed at the moment. Is, do you think that will come up nationally? I think it will come up nationally. I'm hoping that it does. And for everything that um, um, Armando said, there are tons of other people who are saying just the opposite, particularly here in South Florida when it comes to businesses being able to operate, um, not being able to find workers because of poor immigration policies. And you can just go on and on. You know, we're, uh, I want to take a quick break, but I want to just finish this off when we come back. And we have a lot more to talk about on the roundtable, so stay tuned. I want to pick up a little more on the Florida men in the race because we have to talk about, well, let's talk about Lionel Messi because we've invited him and he just hasn't responded to come on our show. But but his uh, his first game here was the subject of a raffle from candidate and mayor Francis Suarez, who who, who got that raffle invitation. We did. I received one. You did, yeah, not. I did not. It, it <laughs> looks like it looks like they went to NPAs and Republicans and young people. Yeah. And looking for Francis Suarez is looking, our impression was he needs a certain amount of small, it doesn't matter what the amount is, the number of donors to qual uh, qualify at least part for the debate stage that he can't participate in just yet. 40,000. 40,000, well, but I think he breached the benchmark of 200 states is what he said. But So you got this raffle. Um, did you Venmo your dollar? Unfortunately, it did not. Um, it did not happen that way. Um, I guess I don't like Messi enough or something. Um, but I did not. Uh, the reason why, I mean, as we see with the, the Republican primary, um, 
as I mentioned before, young people are just out of this process entirely. But the one thing I will say about Francis Suarez is I do appreciate the fact that he is trying to reach the younger demographic with a move like this. Um, but until they actually reform their policy decisions on, on where they stand as a Republican Party, I don't see young people gathering around these types of moves. So, Armando, this, this raffle idea, and then also he did what um, the North Dakota governor did as well. He's offering gift cards of $20, so you can actually buy a gift card. It's a great deal, but it's so politically motivated. You know, does that matter to people? I don't know. But what, as, a, as a conservative, what do you, is, is that okay? Well, I'm, I'm sure that... Did you, get, did you send in your dollar? I, I did. Okay. I have not contributed any candidates so far this year. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing them debate and learning more about what they're, what, how they're going to govern. I think in, in his case, um, you know, I'm sure his, his attorneys uh, have evaluated that tactic that it's buttoned up. It's not going to be an issue. Otherwise, I don't think they would have you know, would have two candidates do it. But more than that, I think what we see is that whenever there are rules, whether it's for debate or something else, people that are impacted by those rules are going to find ways to address them, to get by through them, to, to overcome those rules. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing uh, in this primary, whether it's him or the governor of North Dakota or Vivek. They're all, they're all fighting to get on that debate stage because they know that the debate stage is going to be important for them to get their message out to is the public. Is that important? Yeah. yeah. And, and meanwhile, so you have now the state Democrats don't have to worry about the debate, um, sinking a million dollars into voter outreach. Where have they been? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Where have they been? And hopefully they're waking up. Um, and it, I think it's really comforting, at least for some Democrats, to know that Nikki Freed, someone who has won uh, statewide, is leading this effort. And, um, and other donors are being attracted uh, to Florida because of it. People who had given up on Florida hopefully are coming back and taking a second look. Um, and just going uh, back a little bit to um, Mayor Suarez, I, you know, of the three Republican candidates who may be on the stage, uh, we're still waiting to see what happens with Suarez. But, you know, he is, and I'm not a Republican, but he is the one who sounds the most sane <laughs> at this point in time. So, um, so I hope... Is, well, let's, let's, let's drill down <laughs> on that. Why? Is that because... Well, I, former President Trump to Democrats, sane would not be a word that I think a Democrat would use, just as an observation. But, but Francis Suarez is a mayor of a city where he is a figurehead. So when he's on a national stage, he can create himself really however he wants to create himself. Um, we've invited him here. He does a lot of national interviews, no local interviews. Uh, I would love to talk to him about some of the things he's telling national reporters. But that, I mean, that makes sense, what you just said. Well, I, you know, I represent governmental entities, and I can tell you that mayors uh, deal with a lot of issues. And while they are, in, in some cases, um, figureheads, so to speak. Well, he has um, veto power. Right, I mean, he's right. got power, as I'm just I was, saying. Yeah, yeah, I was about to sure. say in Miami-Dade County, sure. um, or at least the city of Miami, it's a little bit different, you know. And so he does have enhanced powers that allow him to um, make some more uh, uh, relevant decisions on his own uh, for the for the city um, as one vote. So I, I would say that, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully he will get on and, uh, and we'll have a real uh, good debate, at least looking at the Republicans um, uh, from afar, from my standpoint, <laughs> <laughs> but looking at them um, debate with each other because those are, you know, he will bring some different ideas. It's not, it won't be just going as far to the uh, right as we can possibly go and say as many crazy things as we can possibly say, at least the, I think 
the Florida voters will have to take a listen at least. Right. On the debate stage, you're talking mm -hmm. to everyone, including yeah. coming up in the general as well. I remember in 2016, there were 17 people on there, and, and Donald Trump kind of sucked the oxygen out of the room there. So Florida is a third NPA, no party affiliation, a, a, almost a third. Um, so, you know, despite the big gains in state GOP voter registration, um, but with a third of the state NPA, how do you, and, and young, yeah. how do you attract that? I think we're in a beautiful spot right now for the for the Florida Democratic Party. We just announced a new program of over a million dollars for voter registration, we, which we talked about. Um, we're having a massive um, uh, events all across the state uh, over the next few months, and we are also beginning steps to make sure that we engage locally at all of the different colleges and high schools across our state um, for young people as well. That's and that's what the Republican Party of Florida has been doing. There was a, a well, huge absolutely. Push. I think you know our, our perspective, our approach rather, has been to to look at it from the long term. We don't just show up around elections. We engage with voters year-round on issues that are important to them. The electorate in Florida is not as progressive as it is in other parts of the country, and particularly in Miami-Dade, where so many Hispanic voters are not progressive. And so when we talk to them about issues that are important to them, that is different than what the National Democratic Party wants to talk about, and they end up alienating many of the voters. And we've been able, through a long-term approach to millions of voter contacts here in the county as well, We've turned a 15-point Democratic advantage in Miami-Dade County, what is now an eight-point advantage. We went from uh, uh, the county voting uh, D plus 30 in 2016 to voting Republican plus 11 in 2022. And these are major changes uh, because we've talked to them directly. We've given Hispanics and many other voters a place at the table, and they feel alienated by many of the excesses of the progressive left uh, and the dominance they have in the National Party. <laughs> James, it's rolling his I eyes. call it a lot of disinformation. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is, and misinformation. Yeah, yeah well, I know the, the parties have their talking points that, uh, unfortunately, i got to take another break, so we can't really get into it at the moment. But when we come back, I really do want to talk about Dr. Allen's uh, conversation that we had and your impressions about the new curriculum in Florida. So stay tuned. One more round at the round table and I really want to talk about, I know you all listened to Dr. William Allen who is on the task force that wrote the Florida new African-American history curriculum. Bernadette, I, I love talking to African-Americans about it because of the personal connection sure. and I found so many people are just incensed over this and you heard what this African-American man who lived it had to say well, what do you think well I thought your questions were great and particularly oh, <laughs> particularly the one about why did you need to change the the former group that was actually working on these issues and would have known the most about it well I think that there was probably an effort to put people on who were going to lean a certain way perhaps or have certain opinions and um, ideologies um, and so I'm sure those were the things that were taken into account when folks were appointed now it's interesting that several people on that board are saying hey I didn't this is not what I said I, I don't agree with this and you know you have two people who emerged he's one of them um, who said that they did so and, and those people that I've read what mm. what you read in news reports aren't named they are our source and that always it, kind of raises it, my exactly. radar a little bit and, and the, the bottom line is I mean there's no upside I've never really agreed with Tim Scott on anything but there was no upside to slavery people didn't have a choice as but, to but whether here, they okay, were going to remain so, in slavery so or what, not. He, what he's saying is that's not what the curriculum mm. says the curriculum doesn't say upside to slavery it says skills learned personally mm. 
And and what Dr. Allen's point, I think, I heard was that everyone's got stories. And let me say and this. That, that was his. And this is a story that's not being told. Yeah. People from Africa came with skills. Yes, they came as mathematicians, as carpenters, as builders, as 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 art artists. As they came with skills, as 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 uh, skilled farmers. And so, in certain areas that didn't have farming, that, that they thought the land wasn't um, good enough to farm, these people, through their skills that they learned in Africa, made that farm fertile. And so, look. To it, it, it's insulting on so many levels, and that's one of them. And so I, 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 you know, I have respect for whoever this person is. I never heard of him before, but he sounds like you know a, a learned man. But I'll tell you, we certainly would disagree. And I think most um, black people that you speak with in this country. And most white people, I think, at least some of my friends who have said how incensed they are about these comments. I, I you know, I, I would just take a different viewpoint. Did, did you read the curriculum? I, so I read that exact line where it said personal benefit. Um, and I want to take Bernadette's point further on Tim Scott. The Republican Party has five black legislators in our national Congress. Four of those five legislators have come out against this curriculum. They, they didn't. Well, let me let me just um, massage that a little. They didn't come out against the curriculum. They came out against the wording against of the that line. line that yeah. line specifically within the curriculum. Yeah. And so, first off, if four of five, which is the entire you know African American demographic of the Republican Party in the Congress, comes out against something like this, I mean, there's obviously a problem. As well as with the fact that that goes along with the you know the liberal side of this where there's obviously just a massive disconnect on what's happening here. And to take that even further, this uh, line within the curriculum has been already immediately affecting our state, not socially, but also economically, where we saw in Orlando, Alpha Phi Alpha, which is a fraternity that was supposed to host an event in Orlando in 2025, immediately pulled out their event, costing our state $5 million in economic production. We actually did a program with the head of Visit Lauderdale. Um, I think there was like a $20 million worth of loss to Broward County, mainly with, um, and not all because of race issues, but a lot of it, they did cite those kind of, and the NAACP travel boycott. Armando, it's so political. Why is this an issue of politics and not humanity? Well, well first I want to say, I think it's important to have all the perspectives, Bernadette and, and Jaden's included in this. I think we live, we're going now through a presidential primary. We're, we're a highly polarized country. Every issue is gonna get politicized and, and I think sometimes uh, twisted a little bit by national media, I think the discussion that you had with Dr. Allen was uh, was actually really great in that it, it, it really touched on all perspectives. I think that overall the curriculum is, is robust and comprehensive. This this particular statement, a sentence, although controversial, I think what, what they're trying to get to is that despite the heinous oppression, the heinous violence and abuse that slaves went through after slavery, many of them were able to apply their talent, their ability, their determination to overcome that those heinous circumstances and and add so many achievements and uh, so many contributions to our country and you know last year I was I was part of an effort uh, that succeeded in in passing into law a requirement that schools teach about the victims and the crimes of communism and socialism and part of that part of that curriculum also includes on on teaching on how uh, victims of that were able to overcome that, whether it's people like Solzhenitsyn in Russia or Ricardo Arenas in Cuba okay, or Armando so Valladares. Uh, literally, I have 30 seconds, but I have mm. a really important question to that. Would you be okay if curriculum in school taught that Fidel Castro 
gave free medicine and free health care, free education to his citizens. Would that fly with you? Well, I, I think they, should, they would also need to show the pictures of the hospitals and deplorable conditions. The, Context. The, the, uh, forced labor of doctors sent abroad against their will you're talking context. and all those things absolutely context. and i think you were talking context look how we all agree we need context <laughs> bernadette norris weeks jaden dion froy jaden dion Frio. i'm just calling you jaden <laughs> armando ibarra it is great to have you all thank you so much for coming in i love hearing your different perspectives and thank you for joining us but don't go away because we will be right back today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast. All you have to do is scan that QR code with your phone and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. You know you are such a big part of this program. Please do connect with us on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and everywhere you can at GlennaWPLG.com. Have a beautiful Sunday.